Hello, and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. Today, we're diving into a much-requested topic from our audience, the management of hospital-acquired and ventilator-associated pneumonia, which is affectionately referred to as HAP and VAP. There are so many controversies involving the diagnosis and management of these common infections that remain unresolved, and so we're going to unpack some of them here today on Breakpoints. The funding for this podcast episode was provided by Shinogi. Shinogi had no influence regarding the content of this episode, and we thank them for supporting SIDP's ability to offer future research and educational grants to our members. So with no further intro, let me get to our panelists. So first, Dr. Dahlia Blake is an intensivist at Memorial Hospital West, Memorial Healthcare System in Hollywood, Florida. She's also the medical director of case management, which was form formerly their clinical effectiveness team, at Memorial Hospital in Pembroke. She has academic appointments, including a clinical affiliate assistant professor of medicine with Florida Atlantic College of Medicine, and is a teaching attending for the internal medicine residency program at her hospital. She also has an executive MBA in health management and policy from the University of Miami. When she's not practicing medicine with that impressive list of jobs she has, you can find Dr. Blake at the opera in Miami or co-chairing an opera lyrical luncheon or listening to reggae music, drinking coffee, so she's my spirit animal because that's how I survive, or spending time with her daughter, Brianna. So Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Irene, for this invitation. I'm certainly honored and excited to be here and to be part of this podcast. Thank you so much. We're thrilled to have you. Next is Dr. Owen Alvin, who is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan in internal medicine and infectious diseases. Owen is a Michigan for lifer, so he completed med school, internship, residency, and fellowship in Ann Arbor. He has been restricted to one Go Blue on this episode, so Owen used it wisely. And Owen, when we were prepping for this episode, self-proclaimed that, quote, his whole thing is VAP diagnosis, end quote. So uh, quite a bar. We're excited to learn from him, particularly his focus on overdiagnosis and treatment. And so we're very excited to have his perspective. Owen, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you for the invitation, Erin. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Ryan Rivasecki is a critical care pharmacist in the cardiothoracic ICU at UPMC Presbyterian Hospital. Ryan has been at UPMC for about a decade, and in that time, he's become the go-to person for all things lung transplantation and ECMO. His experience in the ICU and with the management of these complex patients is really tremendous, so much so that one weekend when I started at UPMC, I was staffing, and one of Ryan's attendings called me to take care of a critical patient in the ICU to dose tobramycin. So I provided my guidance. I explained to him that I was the ID pharmacist and was really happy I got his call. We had this great discussion. We came up with a Toberdose, and then I find out later that this attending called Ryan anyway, even though Ryan was in the woods camping for a bachelor party. So <laughs> I say that lovingly just to show how well Ryan is respected at our institution. So Ryan, we're very excited to have you. Welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk through everyone, and, and I'm sure we agreed on the same dose. <laughs> I think we did. And then I felt smart, because I was like, oh, good. <laughs> I did what Ryan did. So we're very excited to have all three of you. So let's get started with this discussion. So we always like to start with the context here at Breakpoints. And so I'm going to define these infections first, and then I want to learn all about how you guys diagnose and treat them. So when we say HAP, hospital acquired pneumonia, we're talking a new pneumonia. That is a lower respiratory tract infection, which is verified by the presence of clinical symptoms and a new pulmonary infiltrate on imaging 
And this is a pneumonia that's going to develop more than 48 hours after hospital admission in non-intubated patients. Okay, then when we talk about VAP, we're talking a new pneumonia that develops after 48 hours of endotracheal intubation. Okay, but recently there's this interesting subset of patients that I'd love to unfold during our conversations about patients that essentially develop HAP or and then they subsequently require intubation, mechanical ventilation. And we categorize those patients now as this ventilated HAP. So a pneumonia that's going to develop more than 48 hours after admission, but it's within 48 hours of intubation. And there was a recent study published in Critical Care Explorations in February 2023 by Matowski and colleagues, and they found that this ventilated HAP has actually a greater 30-day all-cause mortality than VAP when they adjusted for confinders. And so at first that might seem weird, but I think it actually tracks with what we're going to discuss today in that obviously if you end up intubated, you're sicker than your normal HAP and they might actually be sicker than VAP because maybe it's possible that these patients are more likely to be truly infected since VAP is very challenging to diagnose. And so with that, our first big question and theme that we're going to walk through today is your approach to the diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia. So Dr. Blake, do you want to start us off? Is it true that it's challenging? And what are the things you're considering in terms of the patient's clinical picture, imaging, vent settings, what have you? It is truly a challenging diagnosis, as you stated. And typically, we always use the clinical plus the diagnostic RAM in order to be able to diagnose that. And there's no consensus on some of the symptomology because they also fit with other diagnosis. So you have to have the index of suspicion in addition to its occurring 48 hours after intubation. Remember, most of our patients are intubated, so there's not a lot that they can state in terms of what their symptoms are. However, some patients are sedated and a very few are not, and a few aren't. We're able to sometimes give a notepad too, and they're able to say that they were short of breath prior to being intubated. But certainly shortness of breath is something that is common. Dyspnea is very common in this patient population when we're able to elicit. Majority of time, like I said, that as they are intubated, some of the typical signs then we look for is fever. And fever, as you know, is, is a response to an infectious source typically. So along with the fever, the tachycardia is also a symptomology. In addition to increased sputum, especially purulent sputum that is increased in production, Occasionally, hemoptysis on physical exam. So when we listen on, on auscultation, we'll hear wheezing, crackles, wrong pie are all part of the signs that we look for. Additionally, on the ventilated mechanics, the patient may have decreased tidal volumes, increased airway pressures, which are also along the signs as ventilator-associated pneumonia in, in these patients. They also are hypoxemic, so their oxygen requirement can be worsening as the pneumonia progress or as the day progressed in the diagnosis of that. So we commonly assess with laboratory data, AABG, and that give us a degree of hypoxemia. We adjust the FiO2 on the ventilator and sometime additionally have to add PEEP in order to facilitate oxygenation of the patient. Secondly, we performed a CBC. So you'll see leukocytosis and a left shift, which you'll see bandemia as well. We then will proceed with imaging. So you will see a chest x-ray is performed and it would have either a new infiltrate or progressively worsening of that infiltrate. That infiltrate can be accompanied by pleural effusion, also can be dense consolidation or can be alveolar in nature. 
at times, not always. A CT scan is performed and a CT scan can also uh, show that the infiltrate has developed. If the chest X-ray is not convincing that there's an infiltrate there, at, sometimes the patient is ill and the chest X-ray is clear and lo and behold, you'll see the infiltrate on the CT imaging or other complexities there associated with the diagnosis. Definitely the CT scan or when there's pleural effusion or complex effusion, it gives you the severity, how severe this pneumonia is. Thanks for that background. I think that's really important. And I think these are things we see too. So clinical signs, fever, leukocytosis, increased secretions, they're helpful, but often they're nonspecific in ventilated patients, which I think is why we see these statistics like 40 to 70% of VAP might be overdiagnosed or overtreated. So Owen, what do you think about that? I know you feel strongly about clinical phenotypes that might be overdiagnosed. What's your approach to VAP diagnosis? First of all, thanks to Dr. Blake for the wonderful introduction. VAP's a really, really serious problem. It's highly morbid. It's associated with substantial rates of all-cause mortality, ventilator dependence, antimicrobial resistance. So it needs to be taken really seriously. But it's, it's one of the most overdiagnosed conditions, certainly among healthcare-associated infections, but arguably in, in a lot of medicine. And a large part of that is just because there's not any great gold standard diagnostic right. criteria. So when we, when we take care of patients with Staph aureus bacteremia, if you want to enroll someone in a clinical trial, they, they just have to have Staph aureus in their blood, right? If you isolate bacteria, even from a BAL in a mechanically ventilated patient, and it grows above the quantitative threshold that's set at whatever level you get it at, that has a positive predictive value of only about 60-ish percent for bacterial pneumonia. A major problem with VAP is that essentially everything that we know about the diagnostic likelihood of VAP comes from autopsy-based studies. So patients die, you take a sample of their lung tissue, and histopathologically, you evaluate for whether or not they had pneumonia. And then you try and correlate the antecedent clinical symptoms or lab tests that they had before they died to see how much they correlate with VAP. And a big problem with that is that, you know, patients who die in the ICU aren't necessarily representative of the ICU patients as a whole. We kind of call that spectrum bias or the severity of illness in a group of patients might not mirror that of others. But even within the context of that, things like fever, white count, purulent secretions do not have a very robust positive or even negative predictive value for ventilator-associated pneumonia. They're all nonspecific. They can all be caused by alternative things. And so in clinical practice, I guess my experience is that most of the time people end up treating VAP, but they don't feel very, very good about it. My approach to diagnosis involves just a couple of things. One is I look for a radiographic criteria. Usually that's poor quality portable chest x-ray in a mechanically <laughs> ventilated patient. If there is nothing infiltrating the lungs on an x-ray, that is very helpful, but that is almost never the case. And many times I think you can hallucinate an infiltrate in a critically ill patient, right? Just because they're just sandwiched up in the bed and they have all other kinds of things going on with their physiology, which probably is causing gunk on imaging. There are certain specific things on a chest x-ray that if they're there can be really helpful. Air bronchograms are a big one. 
They are rarely seen, but if they're present, they're helpful. And then we have something called fissure abutment, which is if you see a nice line outlining your consolidation, meaning it's kind of pushed up against the fissure of a lobe, that's also a useful sign. But again, those are rarely seen. And so in clinical practice, imaging is not super helpful unless it's completely clear, which is rarely the case. Fever, leukocytosis, purulent secretions, and worsening ventilator requirements. Of those three, worsening ventilator requirements are the things that I think needs to be taken the most seriously. A major problem we have is that because mechanically ventilated patients cannot give you a history most of the time like Dr. Blake outlined, and they have an open conduit to their airway, we think that when patients fever or develop leukocytosis, that we should just culture them from every orifice of their body that's available. And so a major driver, at least in our institution, of VAP overdiagnosis and ICU antibiotic overuse is pan-culturing patients in response to fever or leukocytosis. So that's one VAP overdiagnosis syndrome that I think we see not uncommonly. A second would be culturing secretions that are increased or thick or gunky, but are not actually purulent. Purulence is almost never evaluated by a bedside physician. It's usually the purview of a respiratory therapist or a nurse that then plays a game of telephone with the doctor. There are a wide number of reasons why patients on ventilators develop increased secretions, and that does not necessarily mean that the patient has VAP. So we see people mobilize secretions when they're convalescing from their illness and getting diuresed. We get a lot of transfers at our hospital and we throw them on humidified ventilator circuits and that tends to mobilize a lot of secretions as well. So there's a lot of increased secretion syndromes, for lack of a better word, that prompt people to treat for VAP, which are not actually compatible with VAP. And then I would say the, the last thing we tend to see is a very transient respiratory decompensation that normalizes within 24 hours. Something that sounds like a mucus plug, maybe a little pulmonary edema, maybe a little bit of collapse. And the reality about pneumonia is that almost it's almost useful diagnostically to see how delayed the response is to antimicrobial treatment. Because as a general rule of thumb, pneumonia almost never ever gets better that quickly. And so very transient respiratory decompensations themselves do not necessarily need to be treated in all cases as VAP. So what I, why, what I do keeping all that in mind is I use the severity of illness of the patient to guide me. And I try and risk stratify how likely based on those things I think the diagnosis of VAP is and use the severity of illness coupled with the likelihood to try and determine how to treat them for how long to treat them, et cetera. That's awesome. Thank you so much for outlining that. I think that's really it tracks with what we do in practice as well. And I'm definitely coming back to excessive culturing. And so Dahlia, be ready because you're going to take the first hit on do we BAL or not? Okay. So we're coming back to that, put a pin in it, but first Ryan. So having heard both of these fantastic attendings walk through that, you round in a cardiothoracic ICU and see these kind of complex long patients all the time and collaborate with both of these teams, critical care, cardiothoracic, PULM, ID. What, in your experience, is like the trigger here in diagnosis, right? we're going to give this patient antibiotics, or they had a mucus plug, please chill, or what have you. And I know that ever leukocytosis of unknown origin is something we discuss all the time. So what are your thoughts? 
No, I, that was fantastic walking through it. And I think that's what we hear on rounds every day when we're rounding as part of the team. And then I think the only thing I wanted to add there before I answer your question, sorry, is I think it's also fun in a game I do with a lot of my training pharmacists is, so what happens when you don't have that information? So the chest radiograph is is paramount. But then what happens if you're in a cardiogenic shock patient as well, that you're just whited out from potential fluid, or you're on an ECMO circuit or a CRRT circuit where that fever is just not going to manifest. So I think it's fun to kind of walk through those as these are all of the ways to diagnose it. And then what happens when some of them break? What happens when we can't use them? So I think of it as kind of almost like the three strikes you're out method. So do you have a leukocytosis? Probably so many of our critical care patients do. But can I explain it some other way? Is there a fever? Can I explain it some other way? Is there another reason that their chest radiograph looks like it does? I mean, I think we all would love to get a chest CT of every patient we think they have pneumonia, but we all know that radiology would go under pretty quickly with that. So I think when I'm sitting there on on rounds and talking to all the consultants along with our attendings, it's really what's changed from yesterday to today. So did that radiograph look worse yesterday? Did it look worse today? Is my leukocytosis going kind of progressively up over the last two to three days with kind of that that film that looks a little bit worse? Am I seeing things that just don't look right? I know whenever I talk to even our antimicrobial stewardship team and I say, hey, can I please broaden this patient to miropenem? They're typically like, oh, what happened to the vent settings, like Dahlia said? And sometimes that's great and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you can kind of just look at them and say they're they're working a little harder. We haven't gone up on them yet but they're breathing 30 times a minute instead of 20 times. They just, they feel bad. So I think a lot of it ends up being negotiation when you're there between people that all have competing interests. And I think when you want to kind of throw blankets on people, which I know is not necessarily fair, you're often going to be with the surgeons who are going to say, every patient needs miropenem, please. The critical care group that's kind of somewhere in the middle. And then your ID group that's wanting to say, let's just get some cultures and let's see. I don't necessarily think that it is. So I think one of my things I do is trying to balance that and kind of get everyone's opinion. So yeah, they don't look great. Can we start with cefepime and let's see what happens. If nothing grows, are we all comfortable peeling that off later? If we need that, let's broaden out. This guy is going into three presser shock, but do we have the ability to say, hey, you know what? That like like Owen said, that white count dropped in half within 24 hours and we're getting ready to extubate. That probably wasn't a pneumonia. And kind of trying to find middle ground between the two groups, because I think is as everyone said already, there is no great way to pick VAP out of a lineup and what's causing it. And these are just such critically ill patients. It's, it's really hard to know. So where can we minimize our antibiotic exposure, but not necessarily hold up kind of treating those patients that really need to be treated? Awesome. Thank you guys all for that fabulous perspective. And none of you mentioned anything about biomarkers in terms of initiating antibiotics, aka saying this patient definitely has pneumonia and I want to treat them, which tracks with the IDSA guidelines, which would recommend against using things like procalcitonin or CRPs to initiate therapy because they are so nonspecific and the positive predictive value is poor, which I think we did mention in the context of some other markers. And so I did just want to throw that out there that that is consistent. And so to get to respiratory sampling, our next favorite topic, the IDSA guidelines in that regard, and again, these are the HAPFAP guidelines from 2016. So they are a few years old at this point, and they were written before a lot of our new beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors or novel beta-lactams came to the market, which may be cornerstones of treatment now in areas particularly with more resistance. So we'll touch on that when we touch on treatment. But if we're going at least with 
the VAP guidelines from the Infectious Diseases Society of America right now, they say that for VAP, you should treat based on the results of non-invasive sampling like endotracheal aspirates rather than invasive sampling like a BAL and that semi-quantitative culture results are fine. Now, that's a weak recommendation with low quality evidence. They do go on to say that if you do get an invasive sample like a BAL and you have quantitative results available, then perhaps there's this colony forming unit cut off how much bacteria is there. And if you have less than 10 to the fourth CFUs, perhaps you can withhold antibiotics or stop them rather than continue them. And then for HAP, it says that non-invasive samples of should be used if you can get a respiratory sample rather than just empirically treating with no sample. And so I think that's pretty, I think the HAP thing is probably less controversial than VAP, but let's talk about VAP and let's talk about respiratory sampling. So Dahlia, coming to you first, what is going through your mind when you are starting antibiotics for patients, when you're making this diagnosis, what kind of samples do you want and are they easy to get? So thank you for that. And thank you for the discussion on biomarkers. Now, in terms of respiratory sampling, especially lower respiratory tract sampling, we know that that is done to define the pathogen and that makes our diagnosis. So there is non-invasive versus invasive. Non-invasive sampling. So we always like data. So we always like a lot of secretions, a lot of respiratory, lower respiratory tract sampling, and good quantity to be able to uh, certainly do a gram saline culture and also quantify as well the CFUs that's there to help us make the diagnosis and also guide our treatment. So th- what we use is a deep tracheal endotracheal suctioning or aspirate. So basically the respiratory therapists typically gather the sampling and they suction or do a mini BAL will also provide a large amount of uh, sampling in order for us to help with the, the diagnosis. The other things that we can do is also a protective brush. So it's a, a brush that's placed inside the airway, brush the airway. Bronchoscopy is more invasive and BAL certainly is um, another way. However, not every patient can undergo a BAL. It depends on the patient clinical status, including the amount of oxygen, the amount of PEEP, the risk, and the benefit profile that's always been assessed in our patients. Also, our patients, we have a significant amount of patients that are immunocompromised, in addition to those who are bone marrow stem cell transplant. So those patients are are thrombocytopenic, so there's a breeding risk profile. So if we can make the diagnosis non-invasively, and I know there is some diversion depending on which society, whether it's the European society and IDSA guidelines, in addition to American, the ATS guidelines, there's some variation in terms of what you do, you do first. However, it, you always have to take the context of the patient and basically the patient's status at that particular time. So typically we start out with a mini BAL or a deep endotracheal suctioning. Therefore, the ideal situation is to perform your lower respiratory sampling prior to the initiation of antibiotics. If you perform them on antibiotics, it will decrease your yield in, with the microbiology analysis. So I, I totally second everything Dr. Blake said, and I, I will give my thoughts on this. But first, Speaking as someone who didn't complete their medical training that long ago, I always got confused about what a mini BAL actually was. Like I always thought it was a tiny little little catheter that was put in like a mouse's lungs. So a mini BAL is just is the same thing as a non-bronchoscopically guided BAL. So 
a respiratory therapist or someone at the bedside will snake a catheter into the lungs, they'll wedge it, they'll instill saline just like a bronch. It's just you're flying blind with it. Yes, you're going blindly in. You're just inserting the suction catheter. Perfect description. And I'm, and, I'm really and, glad we talked about this because I always see that in the chart. And I also, too, is like, what is this, like a cute little, like they let the intern do it or like, yeah, like well, you just. Did you think that the blind BAO is you just kind of covered your face up and threw a bronchoscope in and like, hoped you got in? You get, you have to, yeah. you have to blindfold yourself and then spin around <laughs> with a baseball right. bat a few times. I thought um, it was some, yeah, I thought it was like a weird game you play on the unit. And yeah. Like, yeah. You know you're in the airway, correct? You're not. You know, so you're in the airway and you can you can localize to one so. side or the other. So I, I have a hot take here, Aaron. So if you look at the European guidelines, they, they recommend invasive sampling or what I what I would just call distal sampling, which is like you're going to the alveolar compartment to gather information. And the IDSA ATS guidelines, like you said, don't really preference one or the other, but just because of procedural risk and invasiveness to patients, they preference non-invasive, so an endotracheal aspirate or a sputum collection. My, my feeling is, is that we as a community have failed to appreciate that distal lung sampling has an antimicrobial stewardship benefit. And I say that for a couple of reasons. So one is we've had a number of randomized clinical trials which compared invasive to non-invasive lung sampling. They show no difference in hard clinical outcomes, but a number of them have consistently shown significantly lower antibiotic use with distal lung sampling. Now the knock on those trials, as I understand it, is that the intervention was also tied to some kind of like algorithmic antibiotic use and maybe if that's not in place, then you are not getting the same stewardship benefit. But we have data that it potentially reduces antibiotic use. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I think you do have to ask fair questions about how the stuff in the back of your throat is representative of what's in the base of your lungs causing an infection. In most cases, they are the same, but I worry in patients with polyclonal infections like non-fermenting gram negatives, where resistance patterns can be mixed and heterogeneous if we're getting the right kind of susceptibilities from up here rather than down here. We have old studies of animal models where you can induce ARDS in them, you euthanize them, and then you can take cultures at each level, and then you homogenize their lung tissue, mash it up, and see what grows from that. And you recover about the same number of germs from the back of, of animal models' throats and, and their endotrachea that you do from the distal lungs. But the stuff in the distal lungs correlates dramatically better with what's actually isolated from lung tissue itself. So that always sticks in the back of my mind. And then from a diagnostic stewardship standpoint, a BAL culture is about 10% more specific for the diagnosis than an endotracheal aspirate. And so I don't think we have a problem in medicine of necessarily under-treating or not recognizing VAP. I think it's quite the opposite, actually. And if we're interested and serious about trying to make a dent in that, I think getting the best quality specimen to actually inform what the diagnostic likelihood is, independent of choosing which antibiotic to use, uh, is, is a useful thing. So I'm a big proponent of distal lung sampling at all times. In our ICUs, we do that with a mini BAL that's performed by our respiratory therapists. 
and we have pretty strict criteria that we've implemented to determine who gets and who doesn't get a mini BAL or a bronchoscopic BAL. I won't go through all the details, but it's stuff that you would think about. It's, is the patient at really high risk for bleeding, like low platelets, high INR, gross blood in the endotracheal secretions? Did thoracic surgery just freshly anastomose something that you're going to instrument and disrupt? Or are they profoundly hypoxemic with like a PDAF ratio of less than 80 or so? And we're pretty comfortable doing mini BALs on everyone else. They don't cost any more in terms of labor and supplies than an endotracheal aspirate. Awesome. Thank you. So it sounds like we're pro-distal sampling or BALs when possible. Any role for any kind of rapid diagnostic? I'd be interested to learn if any of your centers use rapid diagnostics. Ryan, I know we're on the same center, but I'm hosting here, so you have to play along like I don't know, okay? And you have to talk about it. Uh, so any role for respiratory rapid diagnostics? We had talked briefly about how procalcitonin, no real role in whether or not you should initiate therapy, but potentially helpful in stopping therapy. I'd be interested to learn if any of you are using that routinely in your ICUs. And then I know there's a bunch of fancy new respiratory panels out there and whatnot. And then, Owen, oh, to your point, what's in the front of your face, which I do this all the time when hosting this pod too. I forget that no one can see my Zoom face. So yes, you have to describe your video. But yes, what's in, we do MRSA swabs, right? Amazing negative predictive value. If there's no MRSA there, you usually can feel pretty comfortable pulling off MRSA therapy for pneumonias, but the positive predictive value is quite poor, right? Just because you have it in your nose does not mean it's invading your lung tissue. So why don't you guys talk to me? And Ryan, why don't you go first? And then we'll, we'll circle back. Any role for these rapid tests, diagnostic tests that are outside of classic microbiological respiratory samples? Oh, I would love nothing more than to have them. I mean, we, we could make them point of care testing. It would be fantastic. But I think we all know we're, we're not there yet. But as well as you know, Aaron, at our center, we don't really use a ton of them on the mini BAL, the BAL, or the tracheal aspirate culture. And we're kind of stuck there for sometimes two or three days waiting to see what happens. And I think you can have two sides of that. You can have that side where you're relying a, a little too heavily on the gram stain. And I know there's literature out there about kind of over-treating based off gram stain, where you're not on gram positive coverage and some GPCs pop up on stain. And next thing you know, you're getting a call that says, we need Benko, we need linazolid, we have to cover it. It's never even been even on culture yet. So I think anything that could either speed up our ability to find out if there is an infection present, what it is, and do we need a different antibiotic, or even something that I know I've seen in the literature before about, can you find ways to know, is this something like Acinetobacter, is this Pseudomonas, is this MRSA? So even though you can't completely stop antibiotic therapy per se, you know you can at least get off some of your big gun agents even faster, I think is something that if we could implement here would be a, a dramatic help. And to what everyone else was saying, I feel now a little spoiled being in a thoracic surgery unit, is everyone wants to look at the anastomosis. So I feel like I get a ton of formal BALs with great sampling. I think we could just even make it better if we had the ability to apply some of those diagnostics in a faster setting than we're able to at this point in time. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Dahlia, do you guys use any rapid diagnostics for pneumonias in Hollywood? Sounds fancy, so... <laughs> So we use, like everyone else, I think at this point, a respiratory viral panel to try to exclude at least the, the viral component. But other than that, that's basically it. Typically, we will do a bronch and do a BAL as long as the patient can tolerate in the clinical scenario says that there's no risk to the patient. Otherwise, not a mini BAL 
is typically our gold standard. I'd like to just piggyback off a couple of those comments too. We have not started using the rapid pneumonia multiplex panels at our institution. We had plans to do it pre-COVID and then, you know, COVID and everything. So taking a couple steps back, one of the primary modifiable determinants of outcomes in HAP-VAP is the early prompt initiation of antimicrobial therapy with in vitro coverage of the responsible pathogen. So if we could identify not just the pathogen, but resistance mechanisms early on that would allow us to target appropriate therapy, that would be really useful. And one of the limitations of most of the rapid molecular diagnostic tests right now is that they can identify MRSA versus MSSA. They can identify some like CTXM and ESBL markers. But when it comes to really the primary determinant of multidrug resistant HAP-FAP, which are the non-fermenting gram negatives, we, we don't have great molecular tests to rapidly identify mechanisms of resistance and then cater like anti-pseudomonal therapy to those resistance mechanisms. And I think until we have that, we're going to be stuck in this catch-22 where they're not necessarily the most dramatically useful thing to treat it, and they're not necessarily going to be a panacea for pulling back antibiotics. It is a beautiful comment and segue into the next section, which is arguably the bestest section as we talk about actually treating these patients. So we talked a lot about diagnosis and sampling, and thank you so much for that background. But now let's assume you have diagnosed your patient. They have HAP or VAP. You've decided they're infected, and we need to give them antibiotics. So the IDSA guidelines for HAP and VAP make similar recommendations in that they say, and and this is, I I always like re- I like I read these this morning to prepare for this, and I always like going back to what this actual text says because I would gather that none of us do guideline concordant therapy at our institutions because as the 2016 guidelines read, they say, if you have a, a unit where more than 10% resistance exists to one of the agents that you would use as anti-pseudomonal monotherapy, whether that be piptazo, cefepime, miropenem, what have you, they say to use two anti-pseudomonals from different classes to double cover, so to speak, to ensure like just what Owen was saying, that you have an active in vitro agent on board. Now, of course, this is probably all of our centers because pseudomonas resistance to these beta-lactams is pretty common, even if you have good stewardship in place. And these were written, of course, before the advent of our novel agents. So ceftolazine, tazobactam, ceftazidine, avibactam, imipenemrelobactam, and cefidiracol are all going to be new antibiotics in our arsenal that have activity against non-fermenters in particular, like pseudomonas, that initiating one of those might be more advantageous than two from different classes. We also live in a world where we have updated aminoglycoside breakpoints now, which we have a great episode on from a few weeks ago on breakpoints about how really tobramycin is pretty much the only antipsudomonal aminoglycoside, and that breakpoint is lowering significantly. And so when you guys are initiating therapy for HAP or VAP and you want to cover pseudomonas and you may or may not want to cover MRSA, although I'd gather most of us are covering MRSA empirically as well. What are you doing? What are you starting? And then how do you know in the absence of these diagnostics, whether or not you need to escalate? When do you pull the trigger on a novel agent, et cetera? So how are you making choices about treatment? Oh, and do you want to start kind of since you were going there with, I could sense the frustration and not knowing when patients have resistant organisms? Yeah. So I guess two things. One is just to reemphasize the point you just made, which is that the rationale 
for guideline concordant therapy with dual anti-pseudomonal therapy is not because it's going to eradicate the pathogen better, but it just maximizes the likelihood that you're going to cover things. Institutionally, we use an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam, which is for us usually zosin or cefepime, coupled with an aminoglycoside. That's I think an aminoglycoside or a quinolone are probably two of the more common second agents that are applied. I've always found the idea of using an aminoglycoside in this context just weird because the guidelines also say don't ever treat pneumonia with aminoglycoside monotherapy. And if you're not treating something with your beta-lactam, then the second agent's covering it, that's effectively monotherapy. So that's, that's what we do. So I, in general, I think in critically ill patients, because the diagnosis is so nonspecific, usually what happens is there is a clinical change of some kind, kind of like Ryan was hinting at earlier. And that's not the time to be elegant. Something happens to a very sick patient, broad spectrum antibiotic therapy, almost like a crescendo on a music score is very, very appropriate. In critically ill patients, in the next two or three days though, as the dust settles, as more information is gathered, as imaging tests come back, as lab tests come back, the underlying cause of the clinical decompensation becomes a lot more clear. And so I'm a big proponent of very, very broad antimicrobial coverage to start in clinical decompensations in critically ill patients, whether it's from VAP or something else. But I think careful attention in the next two to three days to the likelihood of VAP and what, if anything, respiratory cultures are growing is paramount to de-escalate or discontinue antibiotic therapy. Thanks, Owen. That's really helpful. Ryan, you practice in probably one of the most resistant ICUs in the country, right? We have a very nasty antibiogram. Listeners of this podcast are very familiar with our hospital, and we are not ashamed. We are proud. So <laughs> we deal with a lot of crazy resistance. So I think this is an important question. I, I, Owen just walked us through, yeah, if a patient is closer to death than life, we have a narrower window to get it wrong. We can Starting antibiotics is not the wrong thing to do there. It's just following up to stop them when appropriate. What walk us through the UPMC algorithm then? What are you starting initially? And then what patients warrant novel therapies earlier? Yeah, and I, I think you're right. And like Ryan Shields has always said, where he loves us for keeping him in business in our unit here. But but I think Owen is exactly what I would echo, is it's it's really that risk stratification. Do I have time and a little bit of reserve to miss? And and I think in a lot of these patients, the answer tends to be no. So I do think we still double cover those patients. I guess my kind of internal process, though, doesn't necessarily always end with, am I double covering for a certain bacteria? More so, and I think like Dahlia and Owen, you see all the time as well, like the lungs can look very poorly. We all already discussed how the diagnosis of VAP is not ideal. So are you really willing to put all of your eggs into the basket of this is just a pneumonia driving a picture? So what I often recommend is say, do you have concern that there's any other source of infection? Could this be the abdomen? If so, I'm going to quote double cover, but it's not necessarily to make sure that I'm attacking pseudomonas from two different drug agents. It's saying I'm going to maybe give that one-time dose of IV gentamicin in case there is an ESBL. I'm going to start my cefepime for the pseudomonal coverage and kind of hope that somewhere I'm catching something that's growing. I would say that in our unit specifically, we have a very low threshold for reaching 
for that IV immunoglycoside, the seven milligrams per kilogram, and just say, you know what, I know there's a slight risk of acute kidney injury, but there's a higher risk of mortality in this patient, so I'm going to go for it. I would say we do a probably 80% immunoglycoside, if I had to put a number on it, as opposed to fluoroquinolone in terms of a double coverage from a beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor. I think one thing that I've struggled with clinically, and I'm, I'm interested for the other panelists' take here, is now that we have those better agents, now that we have ceftoltezo, Tazavi, Mirovaber, Emireli, when is the time just to say, you know what? Everyone that is really in true septic shock with suspicion for one of these drug resistance, I'm going to go as broad as possible, and I'm going to make a handshake deal with the stewardship team that says, hey, if nothing grows at 48 hours, I'm probably not going to stop antibiotics, but I'll back down to just a cefepime, back down to a zosin, but give me everything up front. And I think if you potentially take that approach, can you get really rid of that idea of double coverage? Because what, as Owen said, what what are you really getting out of a one-time dose of tobramycin for potential pseudomonas pneumonia? Unless you maybe have some argument, did you really have a kind of pseudomonas that spilled into the blood and you think that some of that is driving some of your true shock state? And could you, quote, sterilize the blood faster with an aminoglycoside than that one-time dose of, of a beta-lactam? I mean, I think that's probably a, a separate podcast for you to discuss it on. But I think in general, I agree, going as broad as you possibly can up front probably makes the most sense here. And I know the stewardship people probably have a little bit of shaking right now with me saying that. So I'm interested what you guys would do at your institutions in those settings. Well, you know, my mantra is stewardship is getting patients on the right drug fast enough and and saving lives, right? So good stewardship is empiric escalation when appropriate. But I think this is the question we need to answer, right? We have things that say double cover because we didn't have drugs and it said we want our to increase the likelihood that we have an active agent on board, right? But we need to now put that's the challenge of the next couple of years to get better guidance out because we have two th- well, we have we have a lot of things going on, right? We have new aminoglycoside breakpoints that essentially totally rock the boat on whether or not that's useful as a double covering agent. Ryan, to your point, if it's pseudo tobra, if it's a CRE, maybe gent there, if it's a urinary source, we like single dose gent at our institution for CRE, but that that's different conversations. That's more nuanced. Dose optimization, which is way beyond this podcast, but we'll definitely cover in other episodes. If I'm giving two QA over three hours of mirapenem, I can probably hit a higher MIC than a one. Should my antibiogram reflect that? And should I take that into account when I'm looking at my empiric susceptibilities? Probably. We do dose optimization across the board of beta-lactams at our institution, but we don't. our antibiogram doesn't necessarily say that. So that might be a little bit of false advertising about the need for second agents. And then we haven't talked about this yet, but patients with VAP get a lot of non-fermenters beyond pseudo, acinetobacter, steno. Do you die with those or from those? We don't know. And so we rarely, if ever, we we don't empirically cover it with standard beta-lactams. But if you have a patient with a history of acinetobacter or a unit with a lot of acinetobacter, should they get call if they develop VAP? Should they get something, should they get Ceftaz AV plus Astranium to cover steno? I mean, who knows? So I think that these are definitely important questions that are going to evolve in the coming years with the availability of these agents. Dr. Blake, what do you do? Everyone Uh, getting an aminoglycoside or you're like, no, we have no resistance down here. You guys are weird. What's your practice? I practice. So Ryan brought up a very important question. Do you give two days, three days? How do you approach it and still be respectful to that antibiotic stewardship? And so for us, it's basically looking at our patient, look at the severity of illness. So as an intensivist, our patients are extremely, extremely ill. 
And at times, they rapidly progress to sepsis and sepsis shock and sometimes refractory shock. So our goal is always to prevent that. And so, and in the words of one of my attendants who trained me many years ago, stated, you want to hit them fast and hit them hard. So that was our training in terms of antibiotics in the right context, meaning the right clinical scenario of that patient. So we always consulted our antibiogram and see where we fall in terms of resistance profile before we decide what antibiotic. And, and look at that patient, risk factors. It, are they immunocompromised? Have they been in a hospital the last 90 days? Were they treated in antibiotics? What, what is the risk profile that makes them requiring the biggest spectrum and broadest spectrum? And how ill are they that determine the antibiotic? So we very rarely use aminoglycosides. Typically, if we're covering pseudomonas, monotherapy is usually adequate. But however, we use cefepine, zosin, the fluoroquinolones, especially Cipro and some of those medications. And our patients are very complex with multiple comorbid conditions. And therefore, we try to prevent arrhythmias and prevent electrolyte abnormalities. And also, they're at risk for renal failure. If they're not in renal failure, they have acute kidney injury and pro can progress from there. So we're very cautious in terms of which antibiotics that we use. And the first rule of medicine is always to do no harm. So we take that all into context. And certainly, it's an ongoing negotiation with our infectious disease colleagues. We are typically round as a multidisciplinary team. And our infectious colleagues at times while we're rounded will join us at, during the round to have discussions and with our clinical pharmacists at the helm. And so it's always that active discussion in our unit. When we round, we take a team approach. And sometimes, or more often, I have to negotiate and say, let's approach the patient this way, given all these risk factors and the severity of illness and the pressure requirement, the comorbid conditions, the multi-organ failure. Can we empirically do three days of broad-spectrum antibiotics meaning use our vancomycin to cover the possibility of MRSA in this patient. Typically, we use cefepine as the starting point or zosin if we're concerned about coexistent infections such as intra-abdominal infections or anaerobes that we're concerned about. So that's really where we start. Again, very rarely we need double coverage based on our enterobiogram for our hospital and our location. And very rarely. And if we're approaching a second agent, I like to have ID involved typically. And so we get our infectious disease consultant involved. And then the discussion truly, truly becomes more of a multidisciplinary approach. I love it. I love the collaboration. And I love that you mentioned IV antibiotics within the last 90 days as a risk factor, because I did forget to mention that. That is, of course, highlighted in many of our reference tools. And that's, I think, another whole question is if so, if you got outpatient surgery and you got one dose of cefazolin in the last 50, 54 days ago, is that as much of a risk as I was, you know, got three weeks of ertapenem outpatient for a pyelonephritis, something or other. And I think that's pretty nonspecific too, and something we could dig into. All right, we're going to move on. I like that you said three days and then stop if they don't need them anymore and having that collaborative discussion. We're going to move into durations. It's like, you guys, you don't even need me. You're just feeding up the next topic because we're going to go into durations before we do our closing segment. But before we move into durations, I do want Ryan to take two minutes <laughs> to pitch linazolid over vancomycin for MRSA. We talked about gram negatives because they're sexy and they're fun, but MRSA antibiotic coverage is very important in this disease state. And Ryan, as my dear pharmacist friend, talk to me about your thoughts about linazolid, 
versus vancomycin and what you're doing in your ICU? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think many physicians, many pharmacists have the drugs they like and the drugs they don't like. For me, one of the ones that I wish just never came onto the market would be vancomycin. It's just, I think, one of the dirtiest, ugliest, so much, so many problems with it. I mean, I say that with all due respect to everyone that's done fantastic work with AUC and all the cool stuff we do, but imagine a world where we didn't have to do any of that. And we could just give a really nice, relatively well-tolerated drug in linazolid. So I am a very big proponent. Ryan, of- I just want to say the this podcast video chat platform doesn't have an emoji option, <laughs> but I, I, really, I wanted to give a clap. The clap? Yeah. So we have been probably in, in our ICU very aggressive within the last couple of years of switching as many patients as we can to linazolid over vancomycin. And I think one of the things that has allowed us to do that is a lot of the rapid diagnostics that we didn't necessarily get into in depth here, but is the Mercenera swab. So I think we've already discussed that that true crashing patient, we are going to need to cover for MRSA. But what if we just needed to give them one dose? So if I'm giving them just one dose of vancomycin, I'd have to load them with that 20 to 25 mg per kg. We all know the risks of AKI. Who knows if it's one dose, if it's the 48 hours. But what if I could send a nary, give them one dose of linazolid? No one's going to become thrombocytopenic from a single dose of linazolid. Probably not going to serotonin syndrome with that either. And then say, hey, it's negative. I don't need any MRSA coverage. And we're done. I think that's a fantastic thing. Another big change that we've made in the last de- about six to eight months that we're hoping to write up soon, so stay tuned, maybe we'll come back for you, is for our lung trace patient population, we do 72 hours of empiric coverage until we have all of our donor cultures back. The immediate post-op lung transplant patients in such a high risk of acute kidney injury, they've typically either had an ECMO or a bypass run during their surgery, you're assaulting the kidneys with drugs like tacrolimus or cyclosporin, So what if we could remove one additional nephrotoxin and instead of prophylaxing with vancomycin, prophylaxing with linazolid? And that's what we've switched to. And we've actually think we've seen pretty good results. We still need to review the data. So all of our lung transplants come out of the operating room with linazolid is kind of their perioperative prophylactic agent, um, which has also, I think, been a really big win. So I think there's some more movement there. And I think you're always going to have those unique patients, that true endocarditis that's probably going to struggle to tolerate a full six weeks of linazolid. And I think that's where you could get into other drugs, tadezolid. Could we kind of switch back to MRSA coverage with vancomycin there? Um, But in general, there's just not that much MRSA in the world. I don't know how many times I, if I had a pulpit, I would just scream it from that. And the less vanco we give, I think we're just creating a safer environment for all these patients that specifically in a cardiothoracic ICU, the the rates of AKI are through the roof. So anytime you can remove a nephrotoxin, it just takes one more bad drug off the table. Yeah. So I think, thank you, Ryan. So linazolid is a relatively cost-effective antibiotic now compared to others, now that the tablets are very inexpensive and the IV is a little more. But when you look at the total comprehensive care picture and factor in pharmacist time and all the energy we spend dosing vancomycin, and I, Ryan changed the lung transplants about the same day that I went live with AUC dosing. So like, and we, we still collaborate and we still like each other. So like, I am one who taught the entire system how to AUC dose and then still advocated for this switch. It makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. It's something if you're going to take, if you're listening to this pod and you're like, I should bring something to my stewardship group to perhaps discuss when you have these extremely high risk AKI patients. And like Dr. Blake, like you said, when you need broad spectrum coverage, maybe it's one dose, maybe it's 72 hours. It might be worth considering doing that. And 
letting those pharmacists then do so many other things with that time that they're not dosing. And then when you think about the labs you're not drawing and the AKI risk going down and all of these things, I think it's been a big win in our ICUs to switch to that. And so just wanted to highlight that briefly before we move into durations. I was going to see if anyone wanted to make the pro Vanco argument, but I'm reading the room here and I'm watching our time. So here would be the counter argument just for equipoise. So we, we have some trials. It's very hard to do comparative antibiotic trials for these. Most of these drugs that are licensed for pneumonia are from registry trials. So a drug company just says, look, it, it didn't kill too many people and did about the same as another drug and doesn't tell us much. But we do have a couple of trials from MRSA. There are higher rates of clinical cure with linazolid rather than vancomycin in the trials. The problem with that, number one, is clinical cure can be an investigator-determined outcome and can be open to subjective interpretation. It might not be the be-all, end-all, most important thing. And then what I think a lot of people might say is those trials were done in the pre-AUC over MIC, more sophisticated algorithmic dosing of vancomycin. But I don't actually disagree with anything Ryan said. I appreciate the other side of the coin. And I was going to ask one of y'all to defend Vanco, but I'm reading your faces on this Zoom. And so I will not do that to you, but I will quickly make the points for both vancomycin and linazolid because here at Breakpoints, we want to make sure we present both sides of the discussion. So to be fair, Vanco acute kidney injury is likely more of a time-dependent issue and a few doses post-operatively may not be harmful in patients. But in patients that are already in acute kidney injury, that does feel painful to add vancomycin. One of our peer reviewers of the podcast actually pointed out that a better argument might be that the long penetration of vancomycin is about 50%, whereas linazolid is about 100%. And the references for those two percentages respectively are Conti et al. in AAC in 2002 and Lodi's et al. in AAC in 2011. Linazolid can be problematic pharmacokinetically for obese patients and even patients with in AKI that that data has been developing over the past few years. Crass et al. in AAC 2019 really highlights that. We have a whole breakpoints episode on linazolid TDM. And so that is a space where TDM is likely necessary and the evidence is mounting if you're using it long term in particular. Uh, so just to be fair, you might have to use resources to dose linazolid too. And so while we'd all pick linazolid over vancomycin for MRSA pneumonia, we didn't want to oversimplify, but Ryan, I very much appreciate where you're coming from. So the reasons to use linazolid really boil down to its great lung penetration. The IV to PO conversion is amazing. It's pretty cost effective, actually, now that there's a generic available and there's RCT data demonstrating head-to-head effectiveness. Although, to be fair, that trial was done before vanco AUC exposures were really understood. People use Vanco because we have a lot of clinical experience with it, and perhaps AUC dosing can mitigate, but that's really resource intensive and critically ill patients with rapidly changeable reading function. You're not going to really be able to AUC dose. So I am safely on Team Linazolid. Let's talk duration before we close out with the best segment of the pod, which is the I Feel Nerdy segment, but duration of therapy. So Guidelines say seven days for everyone. Basically, uh, everyone can get seven days. HAP, VAP, seven days. Doesn't matter what you grow. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Seven days. However, they do have a caveat that says there exist situations in which a shorter or longer duration of antibiotics may be indicated depending on the rate of improvement of clinical, radiological, and laboratory parameters. So that's kind of the catch-all caveat of 80 to 90% of patients are probably cool with this, but medicine is not black and white, and there are these patients that fall in the gray. 
So Dahlia, can you talk us to us about who gets longer? Like when do you have a patient on seven days for Hapravap and you're just not ready to stop yet? And you're like, I really want to keep going for 10 or 12. I mean, dare you do like 11 days of therapy? Like dare we just do this crazy number? What, what makes you go longer than seven? So in our ICU, typical practice for BAP is five days duration of therapy. So we're Five? This is five. great. Okay. We're on the shorter side. <laughs> five days when we need to extend what to seven, occasionally 10. So the things that makes us extend within the patient has to have the appropriate clinical scenario. So the patient has to be deteriorating. So sometimes our patient, even though we have a culture and the organism, the pathogen is well known. We have an antibiotic that's sensitive. However, the patient is escalating vasopressors or the patient develop a new fever while on therapy. So in those cases, we'll talk to our ID colleagues again, negotiate <laughs> at times and extend the antibiotics to 10 days. In addition, working up additional sources and etiologies. However, if we, our patients are not diagnosed early and treated early and treated appropriately, the patient has a bad outcome or increased length of stay. So therefore, with that said, those factors determine, again, the degree of the illness, such as worsening vasopressor, again, new fever on the antibiotics. Yes, other etiologists could do, but a few other factors determine that, that we do extend antibiotic therapy, especially in immunocompromised patients who are continue to deteriorate. Okay. That sounds really reasonable for extension. And I, I actually, I'm going to go right back to you then because I, I was going to bring this up later, but since you said your standard is kind of five, I'd love to get your take on what we call quote, ultra short course for VAP, which would be about three days. And so I think this, the first real data, not like this was always murmuring. And then in 2017, there was a publication in CID by Klompus and colleagues. It was out of a hospital in Boston and they basically looked at these patients that are started on antibiotics for VAP. They actually say possible VAP. So to be fair, these might fall on those like we're not really sure if they're infected, but I think it's an important take because you've decided to treat, right? But they looked at these patients and if their PEEP was less than or equal to five, their FiO2 was less than or equal to 40 for at least three days. So basically stable vent settings, they found that there was absolutely no difference in time to extubation alive, ventilator associated death, hospital death, or time to hospital discharge alive if you got one to three days of antibiotics versus greater than three days. And not that many patients in the study had pseudo, but in the patients that had pseudo in the, in the ultra short course, they got a mean exposure of two days of antibiotics. And in standard care, they got 10 days and still no difference in outcomes. So is that something you guys do at your center? Are there times when you're stopping at 48 to 72 hours because they're totally stable? And perhaps like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, they were only started because we just weren't sure and there's this opportunity to do this three-day course, or is five kind of the lowest you go? Very rarely we do three. We mostly do five days. And we do three days when we, again, a staple patient, and there is concern that the patient might have tracheobronchitis or colonization, and we're not sure. And by three days, we're sure that this most likely is colonization. The patient remains stable, then we'll discontinue. But once we have a culture, most of our patients typically are very ill again, and all these oppressors with complex comorbid conditions and diabetes and immunocompromise. And so therefore we tend to do five, but again, very rarely we do three, but sometimes when clinically indicated, we do the ultra short course, which is three days. And we have very wonderful, very brilliant pharmacists that we work with that we round every day that helps us keep on 
track with the antibiotics, the antibiogram, the cultures, we all work in concert to deliver the highest quality of care to our patients. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Owen, what about you guys? Do you do any ultra short course? It's not done that much in my anecdotal experience. I do it. I try to. But what I guess what I would say is I think it almost needs to be reframed. So the people in the study that you're referencing all basically had a positive respiratory culture and were started on antibiotics at the time of the respiratory culture. Correct. And so the people taking care of those patients weren't like, well, this is this is bad, but let's let's go let's go hog and treat them for three days. <laughs> they were like, we they started empiric antibiotics. They let the dust settle and did a workup, and then they were like, meh, this is probably probably nothing, right? So it's either those patients have incredibly mild invasive bacterial lung infection that responds exquisitely to antibiotics or they never had pneumonia. Right. Um, because, so if you look at the, like the median time to clinical stability in HAPVAP trials, it's about six to seven days. And you imagine those patients who were clinically stable enough for teams to peel off antibiotics probably reached that metric way sooner than you would expect for pneumonia. My my approach for determining how long to treat someone for is almost kind of algorithmic. I, the first thing I ask is, are they in ARDS, ECMO, or circulatory shock? And if they are, go one side. If they're not, then the second question I ask myself is, is this really VAP? Or do I have a more compelling alternative explanation for the clinical decompensation and or radiographic changes that occurred? Slash, is this a VAP overdiagnosis syndrome? Pan culturing for fever or white count without anything clinically or radiographically to localize it to the lungs, non-purulent but increased secretions in the absence of other changes, cultures that were obtained for surveillance purposes, or transient hypoxemic syndromes that are suggestive of an aspiration pneumonitis, mucus plug, flash pulmonary edema. If the patient is not in circulatory shock with ARDS uh, or on ECMO, or unless they are profoundly critically ill for some other reason I didn't mention, and I think they fit the mold of a VAP overdiagnosis, I, I am personally comfortable not treating those patients. If they don't fit that mold and it's a better story for VAP and they're still not ECMO dependent or they have ARDS or are in circulatory shock, even if that's not the case, I will treat people for five to seven days. If they are not on CRT and don't have extensive like burn physiology, I will occasionally recommend a procalcitonin and go seven days or once the procal decreases by 80%, whichever happens quicker. But I try to avoid doing that when I feel like the patient is going to be someone who gives us really bad pro-cal information. The, who to treat for longer and if there's any utility to going longer than five or seven days is, is, is a separate question, which we can, I guess, pause on. Well, I'd love to hear it. Go ahead. Go right, go right into it. Let's go. All right. I think I think you should start, and then I know Ryan's over there being like, I mean, I I, I know Ryan treats patients I'll, for longer than seven days, so I eight days. Eight. Yeah. Right? That's another podcast in of itself, right? Yeah. Oh, 
So there was a big clinical trial that was done in 2003 where patients with who met trial definitions for VAP were randomized to eight versus 15 days of antibiotics. The antibiotics used and how to dose them were up to the treating physicians. And while the trial was technically blinded, the blinding ended after the first week of therapy. So for the patients who had extended antibiotic therapy, it was unblinded at that point. And what that study showed was that rates of mortality, ventilator dependence, ICU length of stay, um, and other clinically meaningful outcomes were no different between treatment groups. And there was a small but significant decrease in the total number of antibiotics used, or I should say days of antibiotic therapy in the group that was given short course therapy. In the subgroup of patients that had non-fermenting gram negatives in that trial, Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, Steno, there was a, an increase in the rates of what they deemed recurrence or pulmonary superinfection in patients who received short course therapy. And after that trial, before then people were treated with much longer courses, but after that trial, I think the party line really became give about a week-ish to patients for VAP, but if they have non-fermenters, you might want to go longer. There more recently was a trial that came out within the last couple of years that tried to recruit patients just with pseudomonal VAP to answer this exact question. And they had to end the trial early because they, they just couldn't enroll enough patients. It's really hard to do pneumonia clinical trials. But though the trial was set up to evaluate non-inferiority of a short course, or I shouldn't even say short course, of a standard course of a week long of antibiotics relative to two weeks, the short course therapy was, I want to make sure I say this right, not non-inferior to the longer course therapy. They, the study outcome was a composite of death or recurrence, and recurrence was defined in the study as a positive culture and blinded multidisciplinary case review that determined the likelihood of, of, and the validity of a recurrent pneumonia diagnosis. More patients in the short course therapy had recurrence, basically. In that trial, importantly, they're similar to the initial 2003 trial. There were no differences in mortality, no differences in, in ICU length of stay or post-VAP ventilator dependence. And so I think this just puts providers in a really challenging position uh, because we all want to be really good antibiotic stewards, and we know how much VAP is overdiagnosed. We often don't feel good about treating purported cases of VAP, but I think most of us who take care of patients with complicated infections, whether you practice in, a, in an ICU or in the infectious diseases space, recognize that pseudomonas is kind of a different clinical beast, and it really can do things that just scare the crap out of you. It has a high propensity for biofilm formation. It can actively evolve resistance to antimicrobial agents while on therapy. And it is among the biggest recurrent offenders for recurrent pneumonia. So if you dig into the details of the trial, I think the important take-home points, and I don't want to take too much time on this, are number one, if you're going to treat someone for a week, even with pseudomonas, that very likely, according to the data, is the appropriate thing to do 
But there are patients, if you're just going to do a week, that it's important to keep a close eye on afterwards. Sounds like an obvious thing to say, but for patients with non-fermenting gram negatives, vigilance to recurrence, even if that recurrence is not associated with prolonged ventilator dependence or mortality, it still is a source of suffering for patients. And it's not something that we should lightly put them through, I think. That has to be counterbalanced with prolonged antibiotic exposure, which we also know is harmful. So I think number one is if you're going to do a week and a patient has non-fermenting gram negatives, and you think it's a good story for pneumonia, you should be vigilant at least about recurrence. To me, there are lots of clinical trial issues like the parsing out time at risk and blinding and what kind of outcomes are used. But to me, the big issue with the current trials is who wasn't in them. So in our ICUs, 50% of the patients that we treat for pneumonia would not have qualified for these studies. They're either immunocompromised, they're too critically ill based on severity of illness scores, or importantly, they did not receive appropriate empiric antibiotics. And those patients are often excluded from these trials. Those are the most heavily drug-resistant infected patients. Only a third of the patients in the initial study, the 2003 study, had circulatory shock. A quarter had ARDS. Those are the only two valid independent predictors of recurrent VAP. So my approach to determining longer than five to seven days is if someone's in circulatory shock, they have ARDS or are on ECMO, I ask myself, do they have a really tough to treat bug or not? And that's basically pseudomonas and acinetobacter and steno. If they have that and they have some other risk factor for recurrence, like they're immunocompromised and those patients were not in clinical trials and they have a high rate of recurrence. If this is not their first rodeo with the same bug causing VAP, or if they have delayed clinical improvement. And I don't even know exactly <laughs> what I feel comfortable call calling delayed clinical what that improvement. Means, yeah. What I usually look for is at least a trend towards defervescence within 48 to 72 hours. If it happens beyond that, and you think the refractory fevers are still from pneumonia and not an alternative cause of ICU fevers, I consider prolongation for non-fermenting gram negatives in that specific patient group until we have more comprehensive data on the sickest of the sick that we take care of. That's a little bit off book, but that's my own personal approach well, to this. I no, gonna, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Ryan, what do you think on duration? No, I was going to say, I, I love just about everything you said there. I mean, and I know Aaron and I have gone back and forth for probably five years now on the that ECMO cohort, the immunocompromised fresh lung transplant cohort. And it, it just, it's really hard to stop. It's really hard to stop when you have ECMO, ARDS prone, paralyzed with tidal volumes of 50 to 70 cc's and saying, is this the patient I really want to risk? And I think more often than not, my answer ends up being no. No. And I think kind of through all of the, the discussion with Dahlia Noah and I, kind of trying to categorize my own practice, I feel like I have three durations. And it's kind of those are the only three that I end up picking, which is that five days, which is that patient that's probably not VAP, but you don't know. You started antibiotics while they were intubated. They extubate in 48 hours. They look great. Did they have it? It's really hard to tell, but the patient got so much better after they start it. You can kind of agree on short course, five days. They've already defervested really quickly. I have that seven-day duration, which is probably the true 
VAPs, even in that ECMO cohort of your standard gram-negative E. coli infection, probably that seven-day. And then I have a 14-day, which is going to be the severe staph, the severe pseudo, or staph and pseudo in one of my lung transplants. I kind of feel like those are my three main buckets. And outside of that, yeah, you're going to have your weird empyema-forming bronchopleural fistulas, but I don't really think that's the... That's not the meat of, of what we're doing with the VAP patient. That's kind of yeah. radical. I guess the only other one I can think of is that that three day for the the aspiration pneumonia. The non-VAP, you say, yeah. <laughs> you say this but if I can convince you to do three days of augmentin and and not do anything more than that, I'll take it as a win. And the three day, the three day rule out. Yeah, that was excellent, you guys. I really appreciate that discussion. It was it was really sound, I think. And for our listeners, Owen recently wrote a really beautiful viewpoint in CID about the pseudomonal debacle, for, for lack of a better term. And and really not saying we're not. I mean, we all want to be. We all want to tr- take care of patients the best we can. And if that means more antibiotics, sometimes it does. If it means less, great. We love decreasing exposures. We're not here to say like everyone with pseudo needs fourteen days. I think we're here to say it's a little more nuanced and just saying seven days across the board is probably not always accurate, especially for those of us. We Again, we're a biased sample. All of us are practicing at large referral centers with really complex patients. So your standard community hospital, like seven days for everyone is probably great. And that's the vast majority of patients, at least in the United States. So I do want to caveat that we're practicing in very complex care centers with very complex patients. And so Really, the point of that viewpoint is just to say that we have to interpret data very carefully, understand the patient populations included in studies, and know that you know we make guidelines for 80 to 90%, but the 10% might not fall in that rule. And how do we, that's why we do this podcast to talk about how we care for those kinds of more complex situations and the nuanced considerations that go into these decisions. So that was excellent, you guys. And now we're going to segue into the best part of the podcast, which is the I Feel Nerdy segment. Before we do, the other question that listeners submitted that we wanted to cover today is the role of inhaled antibiotics. And because we're running a little long on time, I'm just going to briefly briefly state that is the humble opinion of, I think I can speak for the panelists as well as myself as the host, that inhaled antibiotics really at this point have no role in the treatment of HAPNVAP because we have really robust randomized clinical trial data to support that they do absolutely nothing. And in fact, they cause harm because they are systemically absorbed and you can see high aminoglycoside levels and AKI even with inhaled. We do use inhaled at our center, and I think this tracks with other centers that take care of complex patients if there's bronchial dehiscence or airway anastomosis complications, particularly post-lung transplant. There might be a role there. And then also, I think CF patients is an ongoing discussion. We know antibiotic cycling and inhaled antibiotics with aminoglycosides have been beneficial in decreasing exacerbations. I think it's pretty fascinating in a world where we have disease modulators for CF now and exacerbations are so rare. Like we might need to call into question whether aminoglycosides are still useful in that disease state for patients that are well controlled, but that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. But I did just want to acknowledge since our listeners did submit the inhaled aminoglycoside question. And so with that, the time has come. Breakpoints faithful for I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place and a closing segment for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. So for today's I Feel Nerdy, please share, my dear panelists, your favorite VAP-related clinical pearl that you like to use as a teaching point. So I think all of you take learners in some capacity. I know you've shared some of your wisdom already, but what's your like go-to, like, you know, when you get a new resident, you're like, I can't wait to teach them this thing that I love. So who wants to go first? Oh, and why don't you start? Thank you. I think my I Feel Nerdy probably be in an effort to explain to learners the pathophysiology of VAP 
You know, the idea is basically you get germs colonizing your oropharynx, and then they you have impaired pulmonary defense mechanisms, and they migrate down there. And to me, the thing that best emphasizes the pathophysiology of aspiration precipitating pneumonia is an outbreak investigation from a while ago where they traced an outbreak of pseudomonal VAP back to green food coloring in the hospital food. And it always helps to kind of emphasize to me that it's all starting in your gut and then it, it makes its way to your lungs. That's why you don't eat the jello, Owen. That's why Never. you just don't do it. Yeah, Never. just don't do it. No. Dahlia, what's your favorite pearl? I think for me, the favorite pearl is that when a patient is not improving, and so it becomes a diagnostic challenge. Why isn't this patient 72 hours in a ventilator, for instance, postoperatively renal failure? should be improving and still have a fever, have a slowly uprising white count, and this abnormality on the x-ray. Not quite an infiltrate, but suggestive off. And so those things becomes a diagnostic challenge and a fun challenge. And on top of it, when the patient's on a mini dose of vasopressor, levofed typically, are very between one to five mics on sedation, and we say that this is the effect. And the slow rise in white count and beginning to look at all the data. And lo and behold, you do diagnose a VAP. However, interesting enough, in this particular case, was also immunocompromised, not known to anyone, and sent off immune studies. And lo and behold, found that this patient was HIV positive and diagnosed PJP as the etiology of the VAP pneumonia. So that's a fun and interesting case. And at the times when I feel nerdy, when basically it hasn't been diagnosed, it hasn't been picked up, and there's that opportunity there to diagnose, treat, and make a difference, and that patient did well and was extubated after five days. So basically, I use that to highlight to my residents, trainees, and fellow colleagues that basically appropriate workup certainly dictates the management of the patient and the outcome of the patient. Oh, a great case. Thanks for sharing. Those are always so sad for our patients, but always great teaching lessons to learn from the whole comprehensive differential diagnosis picture. So thanks for sharing that case. All right, Ryan. I mean, you already got to like wax poetic about linazolids. I I don't, I I don't really know what else you have to say, but you can try. I'll go, I'll go a little easier then. I think it's another one that I kind of think through what I always like to teach my training pharmacist, which is the more red you see on your antibiotic susceptibility chart doesn't necessarily always equal a worse infection. It's just a different infection. Some of the worst cases of pneumonia I've ever seen in this unit, and I have seen more than I care to announce, have been strep pneumo. They've been adenovirus. They've been RSV. So just because they are bacteria that we tend to think of as wimpy and boring and not exciting doesn't mean that they can't be extremely, extremely virulent and something to always keep in the back of your mind, even though the sexier bugs of XDR pseudomonas, where we're calling the lab for synergy testing, are fun. They aren't necessarily the the biggest evil in the VAP world. That's such a good point, Ryan. I know this has come a lot up a lot recently. Anecdotally, I feel like we're seeing a lot more invasive group A strep and other things like this. So such a great point. MSSA pneumonia can be a bear. So thanks for bringing that up. And with that, guys, thank you so much. We have come to the conclusion of our HAPVAP podcast. It's been an excellent discussion. I can't thank our panelists enough for their expertise. 
Thank you, our listeners, for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Again, the funding for this podcast was provided by Shinogi, and we cannot thank them enough for their support. Thank you, everyone, for listening, for your support of SIDP. SIDP does welcome anyone who practices an ID. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You can be a non-pharmacist, physician, respiratory therapist, whatever. Just with an interest in ID, we take trainees, students, international members, what have you. So you can visit the website at SIDP.org for more information about our organization, including how to join and gain access to other free educational opportunities. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary, myself. Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, myself, and Jason Pogue. This episode was produced by Drs. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard. It was peer-reviewed by Dr. Joe Carino and Corey Medler and edited by Dr. Rachel Britt. Our production team includes Dr. Veronica Zafont and Dr. Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Dr. Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.